Listener supported. WNYC Studios. From WNYC Studios, I'm Brian Lehrer. This is my Daily Politics Podcast. It's Monday, January 22nd. It's not just Hamas versus Israel and Israel versus Hamas. The United States is increasingly at war right now in the Middle East. A headline from yesterday's Washington Post, as Houthis vow to fight on, U.S. prepares for sustained campaign. Officials say they don't expect operations in Yemen to last years, but they acknowledge it's unclear when the group's military capability will be sufficiently eroded. Washington Post. New York Times headline yesterday, widening Mideast crisis. U.S. troops in Iraq injured in attack linked to Iran-backed militias. Headline from The Economist yesterday, America and Iran step closer to the brink of war. Tit-for-tat strikes and assassinations turn the ratchet. So we're going to tap the knowledge and wisdom now of one of the most knowledgeable and experienced journalists and analysts there is about the Middle East. It's New Yorker magazine columnist Robin Wright, also a distinguished fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars and author of books including The Last Great Revolution, Turmoil and Transformation in Iran, Dreams and Shadows, The Future of the Middle East, and Rock the Casbah, Rage and Rebellion Across the Islamic World. Robin's new article in The New Yorker is called How Ten Middle East Conflicts Are Converging into one big war. Robin, scary title, but also good to have you on the show to help explain the big picture right now. Welcome back to WNYC. It's always good to be with you, Brian. Let's start with the U.S. and the Houthis from Yemen and spend a little time on this. Would you background us a little first on the Houthis? I think many listeners have been hearing that they're attacking commercial ships in the Red Sea, but they don't understand why and who the Houthis are. Well, the Houthis are a significant political party and militia in Yemen. Uh, They've been engaged in a civil war with the former government for a decade. Uh, They represent a Shiite sect in Yemen. uh, And the movement emerged in the 1990s as an attempt to revive uh, the Houthi culture and the religious sect. And uh, there have been tensions brewing for a long time and erupted into a civil war. Uh, which has led, it was the largest humanitarian crisis anywhere in the world before uh, Gaza. The, you know, millions suffered from disease and poverty. Um, Something like half the population depended on some form of humanitarian aid to to exist. It's just, it's, you know, cholera was rampant. Uh, The economy has totally collapsed. So this is a country that was already in strife. Now, the creed of the Houthi, this Houthi movement, uh, the parties actually call Ansar Allah, uh, but we know them as the Houthis. It's based on a kind of tribal um, tribal group. Um, the original creed was uh, to defy the United States, defy Israel, um, and to bring Islam back as into uh, Yemen as a way of life and a way of government, governance. So once... Uh, the Gaza war began, the Houthis accelerated their attacks on ships in the uh, Persian, or, yeah, in the Red Sea and in the Gulf of Aden. They claimed that this was 
in sympathy with uh, their brethren in um, in Gaza. But in fact, the majority of ships, according to the United States, have no connection to Israel. They're not owned by, operated by, or flagged by Israel or staffed by Israelis. So this is a bit of a canard. But many of the ships um, do have links to the United States. Uh, they're owned by or operated by uh, Americans um, or Western countries. So uh, this is this the Houthi challenge to international shipping is enormous in terms of its consequences because a good chunk of the world's shipping uh, goes through the Red Sea and the Suez Canal. So this has had disproportionate impact for a little group out of Yemen. Yeah, and I heard a speaker recently who was a supporter of the Houthis uh, and what they're doing right now saying they're acting in support of Hamas and the people of Gaza as they see it and saying if this suffering is going on in Gaza, we are not going to allow commercial trade to take place as normal um, in the Red Sea, even if it doesn't directly involve Israel, in order to put pressure. But I want to go back to something that you said and something that's in your article about the Houthis' founding slogan, um, which, as you quote it, was, God is the greatest, death to America, death to Israel, curse the Jews, victory to Islam. That was from 2002. And one part of that that jumps out at me is curse the Jews. They added that in addition to death to Israel. So that, to my ear, is raw anti-Semitism, not even trying to hide it behind a national veneer. Why was that part of the founding slogan of the Houthis, who you also write, and as you were just describing, started in the 90s as a Shiite tribal movement to revive culture and faith domestically in Yemen? Well, part of it is the kind of ideological vacuum in the Middle East. There isn't an ideology or an ism that has attracted or galvanized or rallied people across the region uh, or even within countries. And so Islam has filled that void as we've seen, whether it's in the Iranian revolution in 1979 or the emergence of Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad in the late 1980s, uh, you know, the Muslim Brotherhood becoming uh, the leaders in Egypt after the Arab Spring, there, um, the, the emergence of Shiite militias in Lebanon and in Iraq, there are, you know, across the region, there have been Islamic groups that have captured the imagination and the backing. And some of it is um, because they are believers and, and they feel that whether it's Israel or the United States or the West in general is trying to influence or dominate them. Uh, and so these issues have all intersected in a way uh, and and have been exploited, frankly, um, by leaders who who want to dominate the political scene or the territory. And and you're right to bring the U.S. side of it into, into this now, that the U.S. has increasingly been drawn into Yemen's crises under both Democratic and Republican administrations. So what has the U.S. military role been with respect to the Houthis before last October 7th, and why? Well, the United States has engaged in what they call interdictions of weapons shipments that have been destined for Yemen from Iran. 
sometimes taking circuitous routes, but the United States has tried to prevent the Iranian arms from boosting the the uh, Houthi cause or helping arm its militia so it can fight against uh, uh, a faction that is backed by Saudi Arabia. Again, uh, Yemen has always been, um, it's, it's politics, it's tensions, it's its wars have always played out in a regional context. And and because the United States is an ally of Saudi Arabia, we had armed and uh, supported and provided intelligence to Saudi Arabia in when, once it entered Yemen civil war um, uh, nine years ago. So again, we're talking regional dimensions. Uh, the United States didn't want arms to get to uh, the Houthis so that they could then fire on Saudi Arabia. Um, so it, it's always, the Middle East is always complicated. Right. And the whole Yemen situation, as your comprehensive article reminds us, and as you've been just suggesting, is also a proxy war between Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, in fact, our first listener question comes via text message. Listener writes, can you please talk about the power struggle between Iran and Saudi Arabia and the related Shia-Sunni schism as it relates to the various conflicts throughout the Middle East. Now, we've been on the Saudi side, I think it's accurate to say, but whatever we think of Iran and how malevolent it can be, I'm not sure the Saudis are like the good guys here either. So can you give a very brief description of each side's interest in Yemen when we're talking about Saudi Arabia and Iran? Well, Saudi Arabia borders Yemen and has always had an interest in uh, having an ally in power in that country. And Yemen, Yemen's dictator um, was ousted as one of the consequences of the Arab Spring. And there's been tension over who should lead and who should um, who should kind of dominate the political scene in Yemen ever since. Uh, so I Iran actually was not all that close to the Houthis until the civil war broke out. And as Saudi Arabia became more involved, Iran also became more involved. Uh, and Yemen became kind of a proxy battlefield between the two. Needless to say, as you point out, Saudi Arabia and Iran are uh, two rival power centers in the Middle East. Saudi Arabia is the home of, uh, is the guardian of Islam's holy places in Mecca and Medina. It claims to be the guardian of the kind of Islamic world. Uh, because the faith was founded there. Um, Iran is Shiite, uh, a rival sect in Islam. It is the more developed uh, country, larger population, um, in many ways more important strategically because it also borders uh, South Asia, you know, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and um, and the what had been the Soviet Union, now Central Asia. So Plus, the, obviously, the Arab world and the Persian Gulf. Both Saudi Arabia and Iran are, are, Gulf, are oil powers, and so they're players um, uh, within OPEC in terms of energy markets. So there are a lot of different aspects of the rivalry. Now, what's interesting is that last year, they resumed diplomatic relations after a long break uh, um, started when Saudi Arabia executed a Shiite cleric, and then Iranians attacked the Saudi embassy in Tehran, and so they broke relations for several years. They were restored last year, and they reopened embassies. So for the first time, there has been uh, a discussion between their leaders and talk of, of visits and so forth. So um, their underlying tensions will always be there. Rival Sunni 
Shiite uh, tensions rival rivals for political power in the Persian Gulf and in the wider Islamic world, frankly. Let me segue, Robin, from the Houthis this way. You quote the International Crisis Group saying that, like Hamas, the Houthis feel empowered to have their way at a bearable cost. So let me actually take the Hamas premise of that and ask, do they see what's happening to them and to Gaza as a bearable cost? Tens of thousands of deaths of the people they claim to represent and their own military infrastructure being taken apart by Israel in the process. Does it appear to you or the people you report on that that actually is a bearable cost and not an existential blunder as far as Hamas leadership is concerned? Yeah, it's an existential blunder for sure, but they also will look at, at the conflict as having shown that Israel is vulnerable, uh, that it's not the, um, you know, the perfectly armed, uh, perfectly formed military power that it has been long perceived to be. So, yes, the, the consequences of the attack on October 7th and the subsequent atrocities um, are, you know, horrific in every single way. But the but Hamas will probably its leadership will say if it can survive politically as a movement afterwards, that it has succeeded. Remember the the Israeli war on Hezbollah in 2006. It it went on for 34 days, the longest war until this one, and Hezbollah uh, suffered terrible losses and extreme destruction of Beirut and areas in the south, a huge loss of of its arsenal. And yet it is better armed, better trained, more battle hardened today than by far than it was in 2006. It has 150,000 missiles and rockets pointed at Israel. So uh, I think Hamas hopes that if it survives in any form at all, that uh, it can count it as at least a partial victory. And that's the dynamics. It's the same problem that we, we have faced in wars we took part right. in. That's in both Iraq and Hamas, Hamas believes, I think you might have said Israel, I think you might oh, have sorry. meant yeah, Hamas, yeah, Hamas, Hamas believes that if yeah. it survives in any form at all, right? Exactly. It's a victory. Sorry. Yes, yeah. absolutely. Robin, to finish where we began on the United States role in all of this, What ultimately is the United States' interest in the region in 2024? I think in the past, it was about the Cold War, right, before 1990, and the whole world dividing up between the U.S. and Soviet Union. And the U.S. was also dependent on Middle East oil. Now the Cold War is long over, and the U.S. is a fossil fuel giant itself, for better or worse, but the number one exporter of natural gas on earth is this country. So what are the actual U.S. interests in the region as Biden or anyone else sees them? Uh, There are several issues, but one is the fact that many of our allies are not oil independent and to uh, continue to support the economy, the Western economy, the world economy, the United States wants stability and oil to flow. Uh, So while we're less dependent on the Middle East, our allies are not. Secondly, is the issue of democracy. The United States would like to see um, more democratic governments in the Middle East. Tragically, since the Arab Spring, um, there was an initial round of ousting of dictators, but the 
the young, the protesters, were not able to provide a viable alternative, and so dictators have reemerged in uh, all but one country. Uh, and the third factor, obviously, is Israel. The United States has was the first to recognize Israel in 1948, and it continues to be its main ally um, and also its main source of of armaments. So uh, when Israel comes under attack, the United States gets involved, and we have been uh, brought into this war. We've got warships deployed uh, in the Red Sea as well as um, in the Mediterranean along uh, not far from Israel's borders. Uh, we've deployed 2,000 more troops. The United States is not saying where. Um, we're very involved as well still, you know, in Iraq and Syria with the U.S. forces there uh, trying to contain the remnants of ISIS, which still are carrying out assassinations, bombings, kidnappings. Uh, and one of the two of the other conflicts that have been brought into this in what I call the 10 wars include the attacks on American forces in Iraq, where we have 2,500 and attacks on the 900 Americans in Syria. Since October 7th, there have been 140 attacks uh, on American forces in those two countries. So we have interests in in uh, in Iraq and Syria still ongoing. So uh, the, it, this plays out in many ways. And again, it's just hard to see how the United States can can contain the violence right now. That's what I'm worried about. So one political question to tack on to that, maybe this is beyond the scope of your reporting as somebody who covers the Middle East and U.S. policy toward it, but have you looked yet at what Trump would be likely to change if elected, or what, if anything, he would likely have done differently since October 7th? I do not get into American politics. Uh, Middle East wars are enough. I'm not going to get into the conflicts in the United States. Uh, and I don't know that he's made, I don't think he's made it clear what he might might do uh, on the Middle East. Um, and I'm going to tack on one more, one more, just based on your other answer about limited U.S. influence. Um, do you think anything can bring Netanyahu back to the position that Gillibrand says he had, and I'm not sure that was public at any time before, and now Gillibrand is saying he had a position in retrospect that would have been open to a Palestinian state in addition, I mean, in exchange for Saudi recognition and Arab nation participation and um, in helping to build that state. Um, do you see Biden as any having any influence on that? I'm not sure it's whether Biden has the influence, it's whether Prime Minister Netanyahu has any flexibility. I think he's determined to fight on. He's made that clear. He has said publicly in the last few days he's not willing to accept a two-state solution, um, not willing to end the campaign against Hamas. Uh, he wants to eliminate Hamas altogether, which from my perspective, it's going to be very hard to do. Uh, I think the tragedy is that, that Hamas was dec declining in popularity in Gaza before this war. The danger is that it has, uh, even among people who don't uh, don't like its its tactics, are disapprove in every way of what it did on October 7th, and uh, still admire Hamas for having stood up to Israel and the United States and, you know, the danger is that Hamas is a bigger player after this 
uh, war, at least politically. And and Pre- Prime Minister Netanyahu also is has his own political future to to consider. Um, as long as the war go on, goes on, he can probably hold on to power. Israel doesn't like to, you know, have elections in the middle of a conflict. Um, although I think there are real strains within his coalition government, uh, and his political future may depend on on what happens with Hamas or in Gaza. So, I think he's going to hang tough for a while, at least. New Yorker magazine columnist. Robin Wright, also a distinguished fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center for Scholars. Her new article in The New Yorker is called How Ten Middle East Conflicts Are Converging into One Big War. Robin, thank you so much. Thank you, Brian. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.